Well, let's pray together once more and ask God's blessing. Father, here we come to your word now, and we ask that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your law. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight in these moments together. For Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. We ask in the name of the one who is, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we come to a transition in the book of Exodus this morning, a important transition, as it will frame the rest of the book for us, and that is the construction of this tent called the tabernacle. Now, we've encountered in the first 18 chapters of the book of Exodus the God who delivers. That is, the God who took his people out of slavery, delivered them out of bondage, and then brought them to a mountain, Mount Sinai, where in verses, chapters 19 through 24, we, we encounter the God who makes demands. So we've seen the God who delivers in chapter 1 through 18. We've seen the God who demands in chapters 19 through 24. And now in the rest of the book of Exodus, chapters 25 through 40, we are going to encounter the God who dwells. This is the whole goal of the book of Exodus, was to get his people out of bondage so that he might dwell with them. This is the goal, brothers and sisters, as you know, of the entire Bible. Ever since the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, the intention of God was to dwell with his people. But as a result of sin, there, there needed to be a, a, a plan of redemption enacted. And so we are seeing that plan of redemption unfold. And in the book of Exodus, that plan of redemption takes the form of a tabernacle, Chapters 25 through 31 give the message that God spoke through Moses concerning the plan to build a tent and the ministry of the priests who were to be involved in it. Chapters 35 through 40 actually lay out how it was built. So chapters 25 through 31 is the plan, and then chapters 35 through 40 is the construction. So 13... Get this, 13 of Exodus's 40 chapters, that's quite a lot, are devoted to the construction of this tent, which should highlight for us something of its importance. And so this morning, we're going to consider the, the tabernacle. We are not going to look at every single piece of furniture in it and mine out all the biblical symbolism that's present there, but I rather want to give you a sense of what this tabernacle was, what it was designed to communicate, and how ultimately it's fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the tabernacle? Well, simply defined, it was a tent among the Israelites from the time of Moses until the time of Solomon when it was replaced by a physical temple. It was a temporary structure then to, to guide the people as they wandered through the wilderness and eventually when they settled in the land, the promised land, there they would build a more permanent temple. God gives the essence of what this tabernacle was to be about in Exodus 29, verses 44 through 46, which if you're in the habit of marking important key verses in your Bible, this would be one of them, as, as it describes in essence what the purpose of this tabernacle is. Exodus 29, verses 44 through 46. God says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting, that's another term for the tabernacle, and the altar, 
Aaron, one of the priests, also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So we see here the purpose of the tabernacle, that God might dwell among us, and the purpose of their rescue from Egypt, which is so that God would dwell among them. And we also see in verse 44 that there's kind of two emphases. One is on the tabernacle itself, and one is on the priests that are to serve the tabernacle. And so this week, we're going to look at the tabernacle itself, and Lord willing, next week, we're going to look at the priesthood and all that that entailed regarding the tabernacle. So three points in our sermon this morning. We're going to look, first of all, at the construction of the tabernacle. That is how God commanded it to be built. Secondly, the communication of the tabernacle. What was it designed to communicate? What was the purpose of its... What was it meant to tell the people of Israel? And then finally, the consummation of the tabernacle in the rest of the Bible and where it ultimately points us and takes us. So that's where we're going. Number one, the construction of the tabernacle. Now, without getting into many of the details, which are laid out in Exodus 25 through 27, the tabernacle is a rectangular tent. It's about 45 feet by 15 feet and is set within a larger rectangular courtyard that's about 150 feet by 75 feet. The whole thing faces east, which is important. We're going to talk about the importance of that later. And so imagine with me, if you're not familiar with the courtyard, you can find many examples, I'm sure your own Bible, if it's, uh, if, if it's like this, if you turn to the back, no doubt it will have a map of the courtyard and the tabernacle and what it looked like in general. It's not, it's not, there's not many pieces to it. But when you come into the courtyard from the east, you would encounter, the first thing you would encounter in this tabernacle is a bronze basin, or sorry, a bronze altar which would be a place on which burnt offerings would be continually offered. So there would be this smoke going up at the front of the courtyard continually. And that was meant to point something. That was meant to teach them that as you come into this tabernacle, you are going to be required to have sacrifice. There is going to have to be someone dying or something dying in order for you to engage the presence of God because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And as you keep moving west past the bronze altar, you would see a bronze wash basin. And this is where all people were allowed in the courtyard, but only the people, only the priests namely, were allowed to be in the tent itself. So the people could be in the courtyard around the the altar of burnt offering, but the wash basin was specifically for the priests who were offering the sacrifices on the altar to cleanse their hands, and no doubt wash the blood off. So as you approach the tent, then, you would see a veil, a large veil that was beautifully embroidered. And when you enter the tent, you would be in a room called the holy place. Now, this would only be of, of access to you if you were a priest. As you walk into the holy place, on your left, there would be a lampstand. And it would look like a tree in flowering made of acacia wood and covered in gold. Famously called by Jews a menorah. To the right is a table with the bread of the presence. The priests were to set out 12 loaves of bread 
to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So as you walk into the holy place, you've got a, you've got a lampstand on your left, and you've got the bread of the presence on your right. And as you continue to head west, that is further, further into the tabernacle, you're going to find an altar of incense standing in front of a veil. And through that veil is the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And it was built in a perfect cube. Now remember, the people were not allowed to either enter the holy place, where the lampstand and the bread of the presence and the altar of incense were, nor were they allowed, especially, to enter the most holy place. In fact, priests couldn't even go into the most holy place except the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. Now, in the most holy place, there is one item, the Ark of the Covenant. And within the Ark, there are the two tablets of the law, the ten words that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. And on top of the Ark, there was called the Mercy Seat, which is a golden slab that was fitted as a lid on top of the Ark. And it was there on the Day of Atonement that sacrifice was made. So that's the tabernacle. That's what it is. It's a courtyard with, a, with an altar in it and then a wash basin. And as you move further in, there's a tent with a holy place and a most holy place. And the holy place has three pieces of furniture and the most holy place has one. That was the tabernacle. That was how God commanded it to be constructed. And you can read all about it and all the details which surround it in Exodus 25 through 27, which I'm not going to read. But there, there are detailed instructions of how this tent was to be built. And then in Exodus 35 through 40, they do exactly as God said and built it the exact way he commanded. So that's, first of all, the construction of the tabernacle. Point number two, the communication of the tabernacle. So I've got three points here, three points underneath point number two about what exactly the tabernacle was intended to communicate. What is it saying to the people of Israel? First of all, holiness. Holiness. The tabernacle teaches about the holy presence of God in the midst of his people. Look at Exodus 25 verse 8. And let them make, a, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Make me a sanctuary. A sanctuary denotes a place of holiness. So the tabernacle taught holiness in detail by the way it was constructed. Notice, you can't come in to the tabernacle without extraordinary care. The way the tabernacle was constructed, as well as the handling of the various elements in the tabernacle, if those elements were inappropriately handled or inappropriate contact was made with them, death was the immediate result. The tabernacle was a place of holiness. Now, this would have been very familiar, no doubt, to the people of Israel, right? As we've been at Mount Sinai the last several weeks in the story, We've seen Mount Sinai become a place of holiness. God makes clear instructions 
you stay at the foot of the mountain, Moses is allowed to come up. And then last week we saw there was a little bit where, the, where, where Aaron and, and others were allowed to come up with Moses, but for the most part, the people still stayed at the base of the mountain. And it was so that they would not die when God descended on the mountain because God is holy and they are not. The tabernacle not only taught holiness by the way it is described, but also by, the, by its placement among the Israelites. This is seen in the concentric circles from the unholy outside world to Israel and then the tabernacle itself. Think about this. The tabernacle exists to communicate holiness because you have the courtyard, which is a place where the people can be, but then you have the holy place, which is a place only the priests can be, and you have the most holy place, which is a place only the high priest can be. So there's this communication of sacredness and holiness, even in the way the tabernacle is placed among the Israelites. Thirdly, the tabernacle taught holiness in the increasing value of the materials in it. This is seen in the increasing value of the materials from wood to bronze to silver and to gold as one moves to the innermost section, especially the Holy of Holies, where it's covered in gold. So the value of the materials, even as you stand in the courtyard, which would have been just a general place, not very valuable, but as you move into the most holy place, there's increasing value. And then as you get into the most holy place, there is great expense involved. So this is communicating holiness. This is communicating God's distinctness and separation, even as he dwells in the midst of his people. Nevertheless, he is a holy God that is not to be tampered with or played with. He must be followed exactly as he is commanded. Otherwise, the people will be dead. So that's, that's holiness. The second thing, though, that the tabernacle communicates is helpfulness. Help. It communicates help to the people. How so? Remember the law, the ten words, and the exposition of the law in Exodus 21 through 23. That contains all the standards of obedience that the Lord expects and requires from his redeemed people. But the tabernacle represents his willingness to draw near to them and to provide for their inevitable failure to meet those standards. So God is not just saying, do this, but he's saying, I'm providing you a structure in which you can be cleansed from sin and I can continue to dwell with you. It's, Im it's immensely helpful. The tabernacle teaches us about the help God gave for his people to relate to him. God called it, in fact, the tent of meeting to denote his desire to meet with his people face to face there. God provided a tangible place to relate to his people. Remember, the tabernacle is known by several names. One of them is the tent of meeting. Another is the tent of the Lord. So the tent of the Lord communicates that God is identifying with his tent-dwelling people. God's in a tent too, just like his people are in tents. I'm going to be in a tent. If you're going to be in a tent, I'm going to be in a tent. Now, it's a holy tent, but it's a tent. And it's a place where I'm going to meet with you. So he's identifying with his people. He's becoming like they are. He says, if you're going to live this way, I'm going to live this way. So not only does it communicate holiness by its structure, but it communicates helpfulness by its presence. The mere fact that God is dwelling in a tent says something about the kind of God he is and his desire to help his people and be with his people and, in fact, as we will see, become one of his people. Finally, heaven. 
it communicates something about heaven. So not only does it communicate holiness, not only does it communicate help, but it communicates something about heaven. The tabernacle teaches about heavenly reality. To approach the tabernacle meant to move from earth to heaven, from this world to the world to come. Because the tabernacle, and I'm going to show you this, is patterned after Sinai and Eden. Now, first of all, let's talk about how it's patterned after Sinai. Just as the tabernacle had a courtyard, a holy place, and a most holy place, Sinai had the same thing, right? Mount Sinai, where we, just, where we, where we are in the story. Re- remember, the Israelites had to remain where? At the foot of Sinai, in the courtyard, so to speak. They had to stay there. Exodus 19.12 and Exodus 19.23 tell the Israelites to remain at the foot of the mountain. But as we saw last week, the priests and 70 elders were allowed to come some distance up the mountain. We might call it into the holy place. But only Moses could ascend to the top and directly experience the presence of God. We saw that last week in Exodus 24.2. We might call that the most holy place. So also, just as there was an altar in the outermost section of the courtyard, so an altar was built at the lowest and least sacred part of Sinai where Israel offered sacrifices. Exodus 24, 5, and 6. There was an altar built at the base of the mountain. Now we're going to get to Exodus 32 and see what they do with that altar which is horrendous. But for right now, the fact that the altar is placed at the foot of the mountain and the fact that an altar is placed in the courtyard communicates something of the similarity between how God set Sinai up and how God set the tabernacle up. Finally, the Ten Commandments and the Ark, where were those created? Or sorry, the Ten Commandments and the Ark of the Covenant, according to Deuteronomy 10, 1-5, they were created at the top of Mount Sinai. And they were placed in the most holy place in the tabernacle. So the fact that the ten words were given to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai and those same tablets are put inside the most holy place in the tabernacle communicates something of what's going on here. So Sinai then is a pattern of the tabernacle. So in other words, when Moses would have come down off the mountain and reported to the people the way God constructed this tent, they would have been like, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. That's kind of what we've been experiencing. We've had an altar at the foot of the mountain that God's allowed some of the Moses and some of the priests to go up halfway, and then he allowed Moses to go all the way up. So we understand how this tabernacle is set up. We understand the courtyard. We can make sense of the holy place and who's allowed in there, and we can understand the most holy place and why the high priest would only be allowed in there. So you see the pattern that the tabernacle is following of Sinai. But not only does it follow the pattern of Sinai, it follows the pattern of Eden. In Genesis 1, God has seven speaking acts. He speaks seven times. Let, uh, and then God said, and then it was very good. Seven speaking acts. And did you know that the tabernacle is created through seven speaking acts? It's not an accident. Both were places where God dwelt in the midst of his people. Eden was the first temple. It was the place of God's presence. And also, interestingly, both Genesis 1 and Exodus 31 end the instructions with commands to rest. 
On the seventh day, God rests in Genesis 1, but then in Exodus 31, after the instructions are given, there's a focus on Sabbath. Also, both narratives have a fall of sorts. Genesis 3, as God dwells with his people, there's a fall into sin. Adam eats the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve. But in Exodus 32, after God gives his instruction, there's a fall there too because they worship a false god, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. So there's, there's parallels here between the, the speech acts and how they're set up, God dwelling in the midst of his people, the, the, the narratives both being having conclusions with emphasis on rest, and also both narratives having a fall in them. Namely, when the people blow it after God sets up his dwelling place among them. So, sin then closes off the way back to God's presence in Eden as God stationed two cherubim to guard the way back. Look at Genesis chapter 3. So hold, hold your finger in Exodus 25. We're coming right back. But Genesis chapter 3, you see the instructions that God gave regarding how Adam and Eve were to be put out of the garden after they sinned. We'll start in verse 22 of chapter 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent, sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Look at verse 24. He drove out the man and at the east, key phrase, at the east, of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, what's the significance of that? The east-facing entrance implied new access to the heavenly presence in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is to be perpetually stationed facing eastward so that when they come in, they're coming in from the east. Now, God sent Adam east when he was barred from the garden, and the tabernacle opened at its east end with the way back facing west and seaward. Look at Exodus 26. Exodus 26, verse 22, where we read, And for the rear of the tabernacle westward you shall make six frames. So moving west into the entrance implied new access to the garden-like and heavenly holy of holies. This is a beautiful picture that God's going to give his people access to him again. That Genesis 3 is not the end of the story. That him barring access into his presence is not going to be the last word. In fact, we see in the tabernacle a beginning of opening up that, that access once again. And it's interesting in the, in the relationship to the east that that's where it happens. So this... This testifies that one day God would dwell among sinners in order to bring them into his heavenly presence once again. So that's what the tabernacle is intended to communicate. It's, it communicates other things as well, but for our purpose this morning, it communicates holiness, it communicates helpfulness, and it communicates heaven. That is the place where God dwells. So, point number three, and here's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. The consummation of the tabernacle. We're going to take this biblical image and we're going to flesh it out in the rest of Scripture to show where it ultimately goes and where it's ultimately fulfilled. So I've got three things this morning that we're going to talk about by way of consummation for the tabernacle. First of all, the tabernacle is consummated in Jesus. I mean, surely just listening to this sermon, you're like, 
That sounds an awful lot like Jesus. God coming to dwell among us. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John 1. Before we read part of John 1, I want to remind you what the Apostle Paul said regarding God's dwelling place in Acts 17, verse 24. Think about this. It's almost shocking to hear Paul say this. It's almost you want to say, don't you know your Old Testament? Acts 17, 24, Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. All right, now obviously God chose to dwell in a temple that he made, that he instructed to be made. But it's interesting, in Acts 17, when Paul's gazing out at the landscape of all these pagan temples, he says, if you're looking to find God here anymore, he's not going to be in temples made by man. He doesn't live there anymore. And he never lived there in pagan temples, just to be clear. (laughs) But he doesn't certainly live in the temple even of his own making. Matthew twelve six, Jesus said, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Namely, the fulfillment of the temple himself. How do we know that? John chapter 1, look at verse 14. And the word, that is a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ, pre-incarnate Son of God, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's literally what it says, dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, friends, is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the place where God dwells. Jesus is the place where we meet with God. John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus makes it crystal clear. Look over at John chapter 2, where they get into a little temple argument Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. See, Jesus is the temple of God. Jesus is the tabernacle of God. Sam Storm's writes, God no longer lives in a tent or tabernacle built by human hands, nor will he ever. God's glorious manifest presence is not to be found in an ornate temple of marble, gold, and precious stones, but rather in Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God in human flesh, the one in whom God has finally and fully pitched his tent. To meet God, to talk with God, to worship God, You no longer come to a building or a tent or a structure made with human hands. You come to Jesus. Jesus is the temple of God. Brothers and sisters, we now possess the heavenly reality that the tabernacle represented. the, The crayon drawing has passed, replaced by its reality in Christ who dwelled among us. Because of Christ's death on the cross, what happened in Matthew 27, 51? 
the veil of the temple was torn in two, giving Christians access to the heavenly presence of God. Everything about the tabernacle structure speaks of the gospel. Graham Goldsworthy says, God's will to dwell with his people and to meet with them, sin separates people from God, and God provides a way of reconciliation through sacrifice and the mediatorial office of a priest. Brothers and sisters, the tabernacle preaches the gospel to us this morning. How so? God wills to dwell with us. But how will that be possible? It will only be possible if something is done about sin. In the tabernacle, an altar was made by which sacrifices were made. And there was a physical priesthood that provided a way of reconciliation with God. But that was a shadow of the things to come. That was a shadow pointing forward to the fulfillment in Christ. Christ is our great high priest. Christ is the one who not only can enter into the holy place, but ripped the veil in two so that we can go in too. We have complete and unmitigated access into the holy of holies through the Lord Jesus Christ because he provides a full and final payment for all of our sins. It's an amazing thing. The fact that they had to walk on eggshells in the tabernacle And we are given full and free access into the presence of God through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that not speak to us of his value? Does that not speak to us of the worth of his person, of the worth of his work, of the worth of what he achieved? The fact that he is the temple of God, he is the one in whom God dwells, he is the one who fulfilled all the imagery of the tabernacle so that he might bring us fully and finally into the presence of God, it should speak to us not only of his value, but also our profound need of him. Is there any among us this morning who has need of Jesus Christ? Well, as Christians, we all have need of Jesus Christ. But any of you who, you, you, you will not find God any other way, at least a peaceful God with whom you can be reconciled. We all will meet him one day, but we want to make sure we're on his right side. We're on the side of Jesus Christ, and we get that by union with Christ. So place your faith exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only one who can bring you fully and finally into God's presence. Kids, you can do that too, even this morning. You can look to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I don't get access to God as far apart from his wrath, but only through you. Jesus, save me from my sins. You can say that to the Lord Jesus this morning and entrust your sins and yourself to him, and he will save you. So that is the first fulfillment and the primary fulfillment of the tabernacle imagery, namely in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, the tabernacle is not just fulfilled in Jesus, although that's the main point, but it's also fulfilled in Christians individually and in the church corporately. Let's look first of all at the reality that the tabernacle is fulfilled in us as Christians. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 19 and 20. Christians here are described as the temple of God. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So, brothers and sisters, in many ways, we are a mini tabernacle. We are a place where God 
takes up residence. And so Paul says, you're going you're gonna to behave like that as a temple of God? You're going to go out and commit illicit sex with the temple of God? That's, that's his argument to the Corinthians who were no doubt involved in temple prostitution. And he says, listen, Christian worship is different from pagan worship. Now, in pagan worship of the Corinthian time period, that had been very appropriate. But he says, listen, that's not the way the temple of God behaves. The temple of God recognizes I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. And so I'm going to glorify God in my body. And in the immediate context, it's I'm going to glorify God in my sexuality in the way I treat it, in the way I engage it. Secondly, the church is the temple of God corporately. Not just Christians, the temple of God individually, as we see here in 1 Corinthians 6, but the church is the temple of God corporately. And we read this in Ephesians chapter 2. If you've got your Bible, just turn over a couple of more books, 2 Corinthians, past 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and then Ephesians chapter 2. And look at verses 21 and 22 where Paul describes the church corporately as a holy temple of the Lord. Chapter, 20, chapter 2, verse 21, 22, in whom the whole structure, that is the church, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together, that you, plural, you, Ephesians, are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So both our individual and corporate battle with sin should be considered of utmost importance as we seek to live out our status as the dwelling place of God. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells us how we grow into being the temple that God called us to be. It's by speaking the word of God to each other. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, with e when every, each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So then our growth in Christ takes place as the temple of God, as the word of God gets constant and ongoing exposure to each other through each other. And brothers and sisters, that's why w at the beginning of this year, I preached that sermon on a culture of discipleship. I'm just bringing it back to our attention again. I know it's been a few months. I haven't forgotten about it. I hope you haven't forgotten about it either. The goal is that the word of God saturate our life together. Not just here from me on a Sunday morning or another of your pastors, but rather through all of us throughout the week. Acts 6 verse 7. The word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. When the Bible talks about the church growing, it talks about it as the Word of God growing. Because it's the Word of God that grows the church. It's the Word of God spoken by the people of God in everyday life through text messages and emails and phone calls and, and in-person communication and, and in small groups and in Sunday school classes and in various gatherings that we have informally in our homes or somewhere else. It's as the Word of God gets communicated there and all that ordinary stuff that the church grows. Colossians 1.6 describes the gospel which has come to you as indeed the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. So notice Paul says it's the, go the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. 
as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. So I think if Paul could come back and sit us down and have a little meeting, among many things he would ask, how is the word of God growing in your midst? How is, it, how is the gospel growing in your midst? Not just are people being reached, critical, are people getting saved, are people getting converted, critical, but how are the saints doing and in handling the stewardship that's been entrusted to them to speak the word of God to one another? How are they doing with communicating that to one another on an imperson- in an impersonal way throughout the day-to-day life, throughout their day-to-day life? The church grows into the building of God as the word of God is blessed by the spirit of God through the people of God. Let me say that again, because that's everybody. That's all of us. The church grows into the building of God, that is the temple, it should be, as the word of God is blessed by the spirit of God through the people of God. Say, where do you get that from, Pastor Mark? 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And then a few verses before that, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Notice how Paul, again, ties the growth of the temple of God, that is the church, to the ministry of the word of God among the people of God. It's, it's all over the New Testament. It's so critical. So the primary application for us as a church related to our, to our temple status is that we speak the word of God to each other. And as we'll see next week, you have authorization to do that because guess what? You're a priest. You're a priest. You didn't think I was the priest, did you? No, you are the priest. You're the priest. I'm a priest too, but we're all priests. And therefore, we all have a responsibility here, not just the pastor or the pastor's. So that's the Christians in the church and the temple analogy. In conclusion then, let's talk about the last fulfillment of the tabernacle, which will hopefully set us up for worship well. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. The end of the story. We can't end without letting our minds turn to the day when the heavenly tabernacle of which these chapters are a picture will meet with the earth and the earth itself will become the dwelling place of God as God will fully dwell with man. Look at Revelation 21 verses 15 through 18 and think about Exodus 25 through 27 as you read it. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies fourteen. Four square, and its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, 
the, the eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, the tenth praise, the eleventh jathanth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Now, I want you to notice two things. The shape of this new city and the materials used to build it. The shape, if you noticed, is a perfect cube. And the materials to build it, among other things, but mainly is gold. Now, what does that tell you? What does that tell you? Brothers and sisters, one day, this whole earth is going to become the Holy of Holies. It's going to be the Holy of Holies. There is going to be a new heavens and a new earth in which God dwells with us as his people, and the new Jerusalem will be the new holy of holies. The new Jerusalem resembles the holy of holies in that both are made of gold, and the proportion of the city matches the holy of holies in 1 Kings 6.20. It's cube-shaped. And as golden cube, the new Jerusalem and holy of holies are clearly connected. The entire new Jerusalem will be an expanded holy of holies. The holy city in Revelation 21-22 is called a sanctuary. It will be a perfectly proportioned, lavishly jeweled structure with a tree of life at the center of it. What does that remind you of? The tabernacle and the Garden of Eden. Into which no unclean thing will be allowed to come. And it will be inhabited right in the middle by a sacrificial lamb who will light up the whole thing. No need for a lampstand anymore because the lamb will be the light. That's the future that we look forward to. That's the future we have. May that guide us and affect us even as we live our ordinary lives this week, longing and looking to that temple which we even pray would come very soon. Let's pray. And worship team, you can come forward. Father, thank you so much for the way that your Bible, your story, your word holds together. We were reminded at the very beginning of this service that the Bible's one story. From Genesis to Revelation, there is one story. And at the center of it, is Jesus. And so this morning, as we've considered the tabernacle, we pray that you would impress upon us the reality that we live in a far greater era with far greater privileges and far greater responsibilities than they had, than the people of Israel had in Exodus 25. Because we live on the other side of the temple and the tabernacle, the true fulfillment of that coming. And we ourselves have become, by union with Christ, a temple and a tabernacle. So help us to live faithfully. Help us to live faithfully as priests in this this time period. You've told us that you're a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation, that you might declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now now you are the people of God. 
Do not behave like the pagans. Don't live like them, but rather witness in the, by way of your words and your conduct to the fact that you are looking forward to the city whose builder and maker is God, whose new Jerusalem is, is the holy of holies, who, who, who are longing for that, that day when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and the dwelling place of God is once and for all with men. May we long to be there, and may those of us who are yet outside of it come to Christ before it's too late. Because the day is surely coming, and it's nearer now than it was yesterday. And we don't know the number of our days. So bring us all to a place of trust and confidence in Christ, and keep us longing and looking for the future city of our God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.